On several occasions in recent months, one or more of your speakers has referred to Winston Churchill's comment that the Civil War was the last war fought between gentlemen. How true the statement is, we've never carefully examined. But I am firmly convinced that the Civil War, the accounts of the Civil War and the speeches and work in the Civil War is most certainly being done by gentlemen. And I can offer no greater proof of that than our very dear friend, Gerald McMurtry, whose subject will be Zollicoffer in the Battle of Mill Springs. Gerald McMurtry. Ralph and gentlemen, does liberty still thrive in the mountains of Tennessee? That was the question that President-elect Abraham Lincoln asked Peace Delegate Felix Kurt Zollicoffer one day in Washington. We do not know Zollicoffer's reply. It was not a difficult question except that the two men had entirely different concepts of the word liberty. And events in time would reveal the loyalty of the people of the southern mountains uh, for the Union according to Lincoln's definition of the term. Zollicoffer was of Swiss extraction and by trade a newspaper publisher and printer. He was a native of Tennessee. He was born May the 19th, 1812, and he had seen service in the Seminole War, which undoubtedly built more political reputations than military strategists. He was a Whig politician, which would have provided him something in common with Abe Lincoln had their paths crossed in the 1840s rather than in the 1860s. After holding numerous uh, state offices, he was elected to Congress in 1853 and served continuously for three terms. He retired from public life in 1859 and was then chosen as a peace delegate uh, to attend the peace conference in Washington in 1861. He was a man of noble bearing with piercing eyes and he wore a neatly trimmed mustache and chin whiskers. In February 1861, <clears throat> Zollicoffer was exchanging pleasantries with Abraham Lincoln. And in July of the same year, he entered the Confederate service with the rank of Brigadier General. And time would prove that he was a man of no great military ability although he appears to have had considerable capacity as an organizer. He was a man of great zeal and of great energy, but that proved to be his undoing. His first obvious blunder occurred at Camp Wildcat on October the 21st, 1861 but he brushed that aside, that attack, or that skirmish, as reconnaissance. Lincoln never doubted the loyalty of the East Tennesseans, even though Jefferson Davis sent Zollicoffer to Nashville to try to quell the pro-Union spirit that had been whipped up by men like Andrew Johnson and Horace Maynard and Parson Brownlow. 
Zollicoffer's first task was to strategically distribute 10,000 green troops at mountain gaps and river bridges to try to wall off pro-Union Tennesseans from outside help. Now, you know, in studying uh, the history of the Civil War, we hear of generals who need more troops. But I think we can say that here is a case where a general had too many troops for his own good and for the good of the Confederacy. With Cumberland Gap in his control, Zollicoffer's troops were soon spilling over into Kentucky, uh, brushing up against home guards who were eager to preserve the Commonwealth neutrality. And to put it in uh, local terms, they were eager to whoop both sides. Soon this general from Nashville had troops in the Log Mountains in what is now Bell County, Kentucky at Cumberland Ford and was reaching out toward Barberville and the, and the Goose Creek Salt Works near Manchester. Naturally, Zollicoffer's activities along the Wilderness Road uh, greatly antagonized the Union forces at Camp Dick Robinson near Danville. The brigade there at Danville got a new commander on September the 10th, 1861. Brigadier General George H. Thomas, who later proved to be one of the truly great generals, Union generals of the war. Thomas sent uh, strong advance units of the Union Army to check the invading Confederate forces along the Wilderness Road. And as I mentioned before, a skirmish occurred at Camp Wildcat. This was near, living, near what is today the town of Livingston, Kentucky, where the mountain trail forked in the Rock Castle Hills, 13 miles beyond where the Mount Vernon Road crosses the Rock Castle River. So on this date, October the 21st, Zollicoffer, under the concealment of a dense forest, reached the entrenched Union camp. And with a portion of his command, he reconnoitered in force under heavy fire for several hours from heights on the right, in the front, and to the left. His men fought well, approaching with their hats on their fixed bayonets to within 50 yards of Union muskets with shouts and cheers. Apparently, the Confederates used some commando tactics uh, declaring themselves friends and union men and shouting all right and then quickly leveling their guns and firing. However, one Confederate officer reported that these men or some of these men were lost and confused and apparently believed the union force to be that of the Confederates. After a loss of about 11 killed and, and 42 wounded, Zollicoffer became satisfied that he could not storm the fortification except by immense, immense exposure to a galling and deadly fire. The firing continued through the night, and about 2 o'clock in the morning, the Confederates were in retreat. The Union forces lost about 6 killed and 23 wounded, and the Confederates captured 21 prisoners and 100 small guns and 4 horses. Approximately 600 men out of a force of about 5,000 bore the brunt of the attack. 
Zollicoffer's forces were equally as large as the Union forces, and if the terrain had been more favorable, a real battle might have occurred at Wildcat. General Thomas did not personally observe the skirmish at this, this mountain stronghold. Brigadier General Alvin Schilf and Acting Brigadier General S.P. Carter were in command of the Union forces, and the Kentuckians under Colonel Theopolis T. Gerard did most of the fighting. One authority has pointed out that later, Zollicoffer drove Schoff out of the Rock Castle Hills in a panicky retreat that has sometimes been called the Wildcat Stampede. And this, to a certain extent, uh, uh, alleviated the, his tarnished prestige and yet, at the same time, it had very little significance in the overall military picture. And I might mention, too, that the Wildcat Stampede is hardly ever mentioned except by Confederate historians. <clears throat> General Thomas's report of the action to Brigadier General W.T. Sherman, who at this time was in command of the Department of the Cumberland, contains a very interesting statement, which is entirely foreign to this conflict. He said, I find a rumor in the papers that General Lee will supersede Zollicoffer. If he does, I should wish to be prepared for him fully. Evidently, Thomas did not underestimate uh, the abilities of Lee, but in the light of subsequent events, it is difficult to picture Lee fighting a bushwhacking war in the Kentucky mountains. Falling back at uh, Camp Buckner at uh, Cumberland Ford, Zollicoffer reached the conclusion that the mountain roads to Cumberland Gap would soon be almost impossible to travel and difficult to hold. So he immediately resolved to strengthen the pace at Cumberland Gap and then meet the enemy at any route that he might choose to launch an attack. There were several main roads by which the Union forces could invade East Tennessee. One route was by way of Cumberland Gap, where Zollicoffer, for a time, had concentrated most of his force. The most westerly road was by way of Monticello in Kentucky, leading off in the direction of Jamestown in Tennessee. With so many routes to patrol, Zollicoffer had to eventually disperse his troops in many different areas in order to scout the roads. And during these fall and winter months, he carried on an active correspondence with his superiors. And seldom did he refer to the enemy as federal forces. Rather, he referred to them as uh, uh, Lincolnites or as Tories. And he did not often accord them the courtesy of a capital T. On the other hand, the Union officers whom Zollicoffer opposed referred to his army in their official reports as a vandal horde of secession and treason, or as those, unwicked and un or those wicked and unnatural men who are seeking to, without cause to destroy the Union of our fathers. Colonel John M. Harland, in command of the 10th Kentucky, a Union force, was quite adept at hurling such invectives. Evidently, the war was too new 
for the belligerents to assume an objective view of the situation. On November the 15th, General Don Carlos Buell assumed command of the Department of the Ohio, and one of his first orders directed General Thomas to concentrate his forces at Lebanon, Kentucky. This same month, Buell reviewed Thomas's command at Lebanon, and he advised him about the possibility of an attack on Zollicoffer, who had entrenched his forces in a strong position in the bend of the Cumberland River opposite Mill Springs, a few miles southwest of Somerset, Kentucky. Now, when I first started making this study, I assumed, as I think most anyone would, that Zollicoffer moved to this position in Kentucky. But he did not do that. He moved back through the gap, through the towns of Jacksboro, Tennessee, and Wartburg, and up through Albany, Kentucky, uh, to the south side of the Cumberland, and then crossed the river. In fact, uh, I believe that most students who are not familiar with this story are, are amazed to find Zollicoffer on the north side of the river. It's just almost unbelievable. It gave me hours of trouble because I was approaching it from the wrong angle, and I just couldn't believe it. The Confederate entrenchments were quite comfortable, consisting of about 150 log and mud huts, some very well built with chimneys and other conveniences. The camp was about a mile in circumference. It was protected with heavy earth, earth and timber uh, breastworks. And his overall position was that of an angle formed by the junction of Fishing Creek and the Cumberland River with his line of fortification extending to each stream. This position was about 10 miles below the head of steamboat navigation of the Cumberland, and the Confederates received the supplies from Nashville by way of the river. The entrenchments were comfortable. You've heard that uh, statement, all's quiet on the Potomac. Well, it could also apply all's quiet on the Cumberland, because certainly these Confederates had settled down for a most comfortable winter. And yet it was believed that this camp was in such a vulnerable, vulnerable position that a battery placed at point A on Thomas's map could command both Mill Springs and Zollicoffer's position. Of course, the problem was to get the emplacement on point A. Zollicoffer described fully in official reports the difficulties he encountered in crossing the river opposite Mill Springs, which was at flood tide. He had hoped to capture ferry boats along the Cumberland River between Burksville and Mill Springs with his advanced forces, but the results were disappointing, and he had to build boats. His whole force at this time consisted of seven and one-half regiments, 18 cavalry companies, and one six pounder uh, battery of eight guns. In order to defend the south bank of the river, Zollicoffer left two regiments, some cavalry and two pieces of artillery for that purpose at the town of Mill Springs. And breastworks were also constructed south of the for the protection of his rear. However, an entrenchment with a river to one's rear has been a violation of military principles since the First Punic War. 
Brigadier General Schoff's command, the 1st Brigade of Kentucky Volunteers, was not sufficiently strong to prevent the crossing of the Cumberland River, or I might put it, was not sufficiently alert to prevent the crossing. He had been ordered not only to resist Zollicoffer's crossing, but to prevent him from collecting the means of crossing. But Schoff's forces were so dispersed that they were ineffective and Zollicoffer got across the river before Schoff even knew it. Uh, all the while, clashes now occur between the advanced forces of both sides. Uh, some skirmishes in which several men will be killed are captured. The federal side, for example, suffered the ca capture of a major F.W. Helvetti of the 1st Kentucky Cavalry and Captain Prime of New York, uh, an engineer officer of Buell's staff, along with an unidentified corporal who had uh, been a little too venturesome in making observations. And Zollicoffer, knowing that Captain Prime was a member of Buell's staff, felt that he had uh, captured a very important prisoner. However, I think the capture did not uh, lead to any information. General Thomas, ordered by Buell to form a junction with Schoff, left Lebanon with his command about January the 7th, 1862. I might say there's a lot of controversy about that starting date. A lot of different authorities vary in regard to the date. Anyway, he moved his men over a good turnpike uh, to Cumberland, Kentu to Columbia, Kentucky, but beyond that point, he encountered mud roads. And it rained incessantly and required from eight to 10 days to advance 40 miles. And I want to point out that his troops were greatly burdened with uh, a pack consisting of a haversack, a knapsack, an overcoat, about two blankets and 40 lead cartridges, weighing about 50 pounds. You've heard the statement made that the Union Army was a totem army. And this was certainly a totem army because they labored under great difficulty carrying this 50-pound pack. Thomas was advised by Buell to move against Zollicoffer's left and endeavor to cut him off from his bridge while Schoff was to attack Zollicoffer's front. And such a blow was to be vigorous and decided, and there was to be no delay after arrival. For many of the volunteers, this was to be their first campaign, and they were destined to hear, for the first time, shots fired in a brother's war. On January the 17th, Thomas reached Logan's Crossroads, which was 10 miles north of Zollicoffer's brigade headquarters at the Beach Grove. Shortly before Thomas was moving in the direction of the Confederate forces with no apparent plan of attack, and Thomas did not like to, to attack entrenchments or fortifications. But shortly before he started his movement toward Beach Grove, Major General George B. Crittenden, a son of Senator John J. Crittenden and a brother of, of Major General Thomas L. Crittenden of the Union Army, arrived in Zollicoffer's camp. 
and he outranked Zollicoffer as a division commander and assumed command on January the 3rd. A Crittman was appalled at what he found, and he decided that he had better take the initiative before Thomas could join Schof or bring up his regiments to the rear. Crittenden did not like Zollicoffer's position, a position that should never have been established in the first place. And he did not want an enterprising enemy to attack this Confederate camp. It was not tenable against a strong force and the means of crossing the troublesome fishing creek with its deep ravines from 200 to 300 feet deep was almost impossible and to retreat across the Cumberland River was unthinkable. But he believed that flooded fishing creek would prevent Shelf from joining the forces of Thomas. So he decided after calling a council war, which consisted of himself and Zollicoffer and Carroll, that a movement should begin at midnight on the 18th. And this was the darkest night and the coldest and most pitiless rain that these raw soldiers had ever experienced. It was also a stormy night and with a lot of thunder and lightning and by daylight at approximately 6 or 6.30 in the morning after a march of nine miles over muddy roads, the Confederates encountered Union pickets about eight miles west of Somerset. And this led to a determined stand on the part of the Union forces with a report going immediately to General Thomas of a surprise Confederate movement. And this was to mark the beginning of a Sunday battle to be known in history as the Battle of the Cumberland or the Battle of Somerset. The Confederates called it the Battle of Fishing Creek and the Unions called it the Battle of Mill Springs. The Union called it the Battle of Mill Springs but it might better be described as the engagement at, at Logan's Crossroads on Fishing Creek near Mill Springs on the Cumberland River in Pulaski County near Somerset, Kentucky. And this might also be called Crittenden's gross blunder are to get facetious Zolly's folly. <laughs> Uh, Colonel Malin D. Manson of the 10th Indiana Infantry and commander of the 2nd Brigade was one of the first Union officer, officers to receive the news by courier of the attack on the picket companies. So he immediately, immediately called for the long roll to be beaten by his drummer and his regiment was quickly formed and sent out to support the picket companies. And Colonel Manson then rode three quarters of a mile to the camp of the 4th Kentucky Regiment, and there he awakened Colonel Speed S. Fry and ordered him to form his regiment in hot haste and proceed toward the enemy. Uh, then he rode on a distance of two miles to tell General Thomas that his regiment was in the battle fighting, and Thomas was very angry and said, well, damn it, get back to with your command and start fighting. And uh, he didn't like it because Manson appeared without his, he had lost his hat, his face was unwashed, and his uniform wrinkled. And Thomas felt that in battle an officer should uh, present a, an appearance of regal splendor. In fact, Thomas was busy putting on his new uniform at this time. 
And his delay in getting on the battlefield has been attributed to the fact that uh, there was some delay into getting into the new uniform. <laughs> uh, apparently, it was Manson who turned the outpost line into the main line of resistance. And I might say right here that Thomas introduced into battle tactics a technique that proved to be very profitable. Instead of scattering picket lines in every gully and by every bridge and every wrinkle of terrain, he believed in strong picket forces so that they couldn't be scooped up and prevented from getting news back to the main body of an, of an attack. And, and because he had strong picket forces, Manson was then able to more or less make the picket line the main line of Union defense. Well, Fry moved so rapidly that upon coming in sight of the enemy, he had no superior officer to place him in a position for the battle. However, he had been directed to take a position in the wood on the left of the 10th Indiana, which order he carried out. But acting largely on his own initiative, he took a position on elevated ground about, a mile, about an hour after the battle started. And his position was along a fence in the edge of a wood with his right resting on the Mill Springs Road. Uh, Fry commanded about 400 men. In the meantime, the 2nd Minnesota and the 9th Ohio arrived, nine companies of each, and in good order were put uh, into the fight under General Thomas's own personal direction. Across an open field which, through which ran a ravine, Fry could see the enemy advancing from a shelter of the wood on the opposite side. And meanwhile, Zollicoffer had deployed his brigade and was forcing the Union troops backward. And Fry was subjected to an unusually severe attack. <clears throat> the ravine in the open field gave the Confederates shelter before delivering their concentrated fire. And this distinct advantage enjoyed by the Confederates angered Fry, and he mounted a fence nearby, and in stentorian tones denounced these Confederates as bastards, <laughs> and defied them to stand up and fight, and there was a lull in the fighting. Now, I have often believed that possibly Zollicoffer thought that Fry was talking to his own troops which may have been one of the reasons why uh, Zollicoffer was wool-gathering, as we say, in this battle. Well, due to the moisten-laden atmosphere, the wood was full of smoke and visibility was difficult. And also the underbrush in certain parts of the battlefield was so thick that a man was visible hardly a musket's length away. So Fry decided he wanted a better view of the Confederate movement, so he rode a short distance to the right, and after looking the situation over and satisfied with what he saw, he started to return to his original position. But on the way back, he encountered a mounted officer who wore a waterproof raincoat without insignia. Approaching each other on horseback until their knees touched, the stranger said to Fry, we must, not fry, we must not fire on our own men. And nodding in the direction of the left, he said, those are our men. And Fry replied, of course not. 
I would not do so intentionally. And all the while turning his horse to move in the direction of his command. And suddenly another man, a mounted man, appeared uh, suddenly out of the wood, identified by some as Major Fogg and by others as Major Ewing. And he fired at Fry, wounding his horse. And Fry was now accurately able to, or was able to size up accurately the situation. So he fired at the man who had accosted him, and uh, Fry's men, observing the particular incident, fired at the same time. And the shots were fatal, and the rider in the white waterproof raincoat fell dead, pierced by two pistol balls and one mini ball. The body was then dragged out of the way of the passing artillery and wagons and was placed over by a fence with the face upturned to the sky and it was the body was bespattered with mud from the feet of marching men and horses. Some of the Confederates who saw what had happened tried to get the body but failed and Union forces finally bore off the body in a wagon, the body of General Felix Kirk Zollicoffer. According to one surgeon who performed a rather cursory post-mortem, the mini-ball pierced the left breast, passing through the heart, and coming out at the angle of the scapula left a hole large enough in which you could place your fist. And neither pistol shot was the immediate cause of Zollicoffer's death. And one account states that Corporal James Swan of Company H, 10th Indiana, killed Zollicoffer with an, in, an infield rifle. Swan was a dead shot, and it was claimed that he fired the shot that pierced, Zollick, that pierced Zollicoffer's heart. Unfortunately, at that time, the science of ballistics was unknown, and no one made any effort to find out who fired the shot that killed the general. General Crittenden, in his official report, stated that General Zollicoffer rode up to the 19th Tennessee commanded by Colonel D.H. Cummings and ordered him to cease firing under the impression that he was firing on one of his own regiments. And he then rode forward to, toward, the Union, toward the federal troops as if to give orders when he was killed just as he discovered his mistake. I might say that there are probably a half a dozen theories as to how Zollicoffer lost his life. One theory even goes so far as to, as to state that Fry knew that he was Zollicoffer and decided to let him go without firing at him. A controversy ensued as to who killed Zollicoffer, something like the question as to who killed Tecumseh. The incident, naturally enough, was not mentioned by Colonel Fry in his report of the battle. And incidentally, Fry's horse died. This was a, a disastrous day for Zollicoffer and his staff because two of his staff officers, Lieutenant Henry Fogg and Evan Shields, were also mortally wounded. Crittenden now tried to rally his men and who were stunned by the general's death and he ordered forward Colonel, uh, General William H. Carroll's brigade, and uh, he gave orders for a general advance. And Colonel D.H. Cummings of the 19th Tennessee Regiment was appointed to lead the 1st Brigade after Zollicoffer fell. 
Meanwhile, Thomas regrouped his forces in order to oppose Crittenden's advance. And while some batteries were overrun, or I should say while some forces were overrun and had to be withdrawn to the rear, the Union forces pushed the Confederates back through open ground. Now, when I say that these Federal forces were overrun, I think that in some cases, eyewitnesses of the battle were confused because a lot of times the forces withdrew to the rear to get a new supply of ammunition. Uh, Thomas's disposition and his troops began to tell, even though there was little opportunity for the effective use of artillery, a superior arm enjoyed by the Union forces. It was said that all the artillery did was to furnish noise for the occasion. And after stout resistance, Thomas succeeded in placing one of his regiments on the flank of the Confederate line, and when a charge was ordered, the whole Confederate force gave way in confusion. In grabbing the Confederates back, there was a slight change in the direction of retreat with the southern soldiers halting at a fence, attempting to make a stand. And apparently the bitterest hand-to-hand -hand fighting revolved around the rail fences in the field. But when the Ninth Ohio, made up largely of Germans, few of whom could speak English, under orders of Colonel McCook, heard a charge bayonet, which order was repeated by Lieutenant Colonel Kaiz of the 10th Indiana, they moved forward with the force of an avalanche. And the bayonet charge against the Confederate left caused them to give way in confusion, and they dissolved into a disorderly rout. And there was considerable hand-to-hand -hand fighting throughout, and at one time during the course of the battle, the combatants were so close to each other that they bayoneted each other through rail fences. Unfortunately, the Mississippi forces, the Mississippi Tigers, as they call themselves, were only armed with large knives, which proved ineffective against the, uh, the Union bayonets. Thomas, accurately sensing the situation, pushed forward and scattered a remnant of Confederate cavalry, uh, which was attempting to make a stand, and then uh, the Confederate retreat degenerated into a panic, and the roads were strewn with artillery, hundreds of muskets, haversacks filled with rations of corn, pone, and bacon, and the engagement was at an end. The fighting lasted about three and a half hours, and according to Crittenden's report, the engagement lasted about an hour after Zollicoffer fell. At first, the Union soldiers, who had been on half rations for some days, were afraid to eat the corn pone and bacon. These were the early days of the war when there were current stories of rebel atrocities, of poisoned wells, and contaminated food. But soon hunger gave way to the tasting of the contents of the haversacks, and the food was seized upon with avidity. And this fortunate windfall for the Union soldiers had a correspondingly depressing effect on the Confederates, so much so that even Crittenden mentioned the loss of the food in his report. Moving upon the retreating Confederates, after a 10-mile pursuit, Union batteries, uh, beginning about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, kept up a constant cannonade of Zollicoffer's entrenchments, while other forces fired upon the ferry at the uh, 
uh, white oak to prevent the crossing of the troops. The Union forces in the meantime had received reinforcements and an assault was ordered for daybreak. And at daybreak on the 20th, Colonel Harlan of the 10th Kentucky and Colonel Steedman of the 14th Ohio arrived to take over the Confederate fortifications. A little stern wheeler called the Noble Ellis and several small barges were apparently still engaged in ferrying troops across the river and the Union concentrated their fire upon these river craft and the Confederates abandoned them and set them <coughs> on fire. Upon reaching the Confederate entrenchments, the Union forces found them abandoned. However, they had seen soldiers in and about them shortly before launching an attack. And it was believed that they were decoys that were used to uh, confuse the Union troops. And of course, they found the usual number of wounded and the skulkers who had resigned themselves to capture. Well, Crittenden's hasty and largely unorganized retreat in the dead of night was really a remarkable feat. And yet his loss in guns and equipment was tremendous. In a bottom near the ferry crossing at White Oak Creek were found 11 pieces of artillery, including eight six-pounders and two parrot guns, with their cassons, battery wagons, and forces hitched up to teams and ready to move. More than 150 wagons and over a, a thousand horses and mules were taken. And many of the horses were saddled and bridled. The retreating force was successful in getting two pieces of artillery and about 50 wagons across the river, but they too were abandoned. And two of the, kept, uh, two of the cannons, oddly enough, captured by Union forces at this time had been taken by the Confederates at Bull Run. As the condition of the entrenchments indicated a panic, Colonel Fry asked General Thomas why he did not send in a demand for surrender. And Thomas replied, hang it, Fry, I never once thought of it. With all of the boats destroyed, immediate pursuit was impossible and Crittenden's men were so dispersed that their capture in any sizable number was doubtful. Now that's, the, that's what Thomas said, and uh, Thomas's friend said that here was uh, a case of a general using psychological warfare. That went over all right at the uh, Battle of Mill Springs, but I think that probably the Lincoln administration got a little tired of generals using psychological warfare and letting the enemy retreat across swollen streams. So with all of the boats destroyed, immediate pursuit was impossible and uh, the Union forces were slowed up considerably. However, the 14th Ohio did finally get across for reconnaissance and to secure abandoned property. Thomas in his official report indicated that 39 were killed, although other reports indicate 40 killed and 207 wounded with 15 captured, an aggregate of 262. <coughs> Crittenden's report indicated a loss of 125 and 309 wounded with 99 missing, an aggregate of 533. And of course the only high-ranking 
officer to lose his life in this battle was Zollicoffer. But another very popular officer to lose his life was a young man known as Lieutenant Bailey Payton, Jr., who was commander of Company A of Battles, Tennessee Regiment. He was killed in the heat of action. He died a hero's death on purpose. He found himself deserted by his men, and he stood up and defied them to kill him, and uh, they tried to reason with him and tried to capture him, and he leveled his gun and shot and killed a Union lieutenant named Stout. So the Union for forces then uh, killed him. He was the son of the Honorable Bailey Payton, a pro-Union Tennessean who lived at Gallatin. He was greatly concerned to think that his son uh, was a Confederate, but he was honored to think that he had died like a man. And they found on young Bailey Payton the sword of his father, which had been presented to his father by the citizens of New Orleans uh, for his bravery and gallantry exhibited in the war with Mexico. General Thomas's entire command at this time numbered about 4,000, uh, but the federal forces act actively engaged probably did not, did not number over 2,500, and Crittenden had available about 4,000 effectives, but they were not all necessarily used. Uh, Crittenden's offensive action certainly was dulled by Zollicoffer's death, which was a, se a severe psychological blow for the Confederates. And another thing I want to point out, and that is that the Confederates were largely armed with antiquated flintlock muskets. And in the drenching rain, they missed fire and were practically useless. And certainly, Thomas's low casualty list proves the ineffectiveness of the Confederate firepower. On the other hand, many of the Federal troops were armed with new Sharps rifles, but I should state at the same time that some of the forces were using rejected Belgian guns. Besides the property already mentioned, abandoned by the Confederate, a Confederates, a large amount of ammunition in un unopened boxes, commissary stores, hospital stores, blankets, tents, and trenching tools, camp and garrison equipage, muskets, mostly flintlock, subsistence stores in amounts sufficient to serve the, the federal forces three days, and five stands of colors were seized in Camp Zollicoffer. The soldiers found officers' trunks packed on the river banks with letters and pictures and watches and belts and pistols and swords and clothing. The Confederate commander reported that of one Confederate battalion, all deserted except 25, which was, I think, a true statement. But this uh, battalion was made up largely of men who lived in that community who decided that they would go home and forget it all. And then to the Confederate sick list, while on retreat in the direction of Monticello, Kentucky, grew to great proportions due to the lack of food and fatigue, with the result that the Army was no longer an effective fighting force. All the while, the, <clears throat> all the, while the Southern newspapers professed to doubt the news of the affair. And even more surprising, Northern newspapers professed to believe that this battle would inaugurate the close of the rebellion. 
or to use their words, it was the beginning of the end. The, the Battle of Mill Springs made good reading, of which the North had not had too much. Retreating by way of Monticello, Kentucky, Crittenden established division headquarters at Gainsborough in Jackson County, Tennessee, and then moved on to Camp Fogg uh, in Smith County, Tennessee, where on February the 13th, 1862, he notified with tongue-in-cheek, I think, his assistant adjutant general that his division was refurnished and drilling ready for any service to which it might be assigned. General Crittenden stated that the loss of Zollicoffer was a severe blow to the Confederate cause, the army, and himself. He said, I found him wise in counsel and heroic in action. An eyewitness of the battle said that both armies were courageous up until the death of Zollicoffer and that no decided gain had been made by either side. The witness continued, if Thomas had been killed instead of Zollicoffer, the opposite outcome of the battle would have been true. The wildest excitement resulted from the Confederate defeat, the battle having fought, been fought just over the boundary line and just 100 miles from Knoxville created great panic in that city and they expected the federal forces to en enter that city within a few days. Meanwhile, Nashville underwent great consternation and grief, and great plantation owners with their slaves and families and provisions left the country and moved into Alabama and Mississippi. Zollicoffer, their first citizen and protector, was dead, and young Bailey Payton, the son of Honorable Bailey Payton had likewise lost his life. In many homes in Nashville and in surrounding environs, there was weeping and lamentation over the loss of Tennessee's noble sons. No southern city had ever sent forth braver sons than those who followed Zollicoffer. And they went with such exultant confidence and manly spirit to the fatal field of Fishing Creek. Now, we might ask this question, of what significance was this little battle? Well, it was the first real victory for the national cause since the Union disaster at Bull Run six months before. It created the first break in the Confederate line in Kentucky. A road was opened for a federal advance into East Tennessee. But the scarcity of provisions, the unfavorable condition of the roads, the difficulty of crossing the river made progress in that direction impractical. And eventually the whole plan of Union strategy was abandoned. Carter was ordered with his brigade against Cumberland Gap, and Thomas was ordered to rejoin Buell's main column. So the Tennessee expedition, which had been originally devised by General William Nelson, approved by General George B. McClellan, and put into motion by General George B. Thomas was scrapped. <coughs> and once the full significance of the loss of the Battle of Mill Springs was fully understood by Southern leaders, Crittenden was severely censured, and among other charges was that of intemperance. He was virtually kept 
under arrest for a full year. He then resigned his commission, but continued to serve the Confederate cause as a volunteer. His rank was that of colonel for the rest of the war, which was just as good as general in Kentucky. <laughs> general Crittenden never quite caught the fancy of the public. Although he conducted himself well during the battle and was one of the last to leave the field and retreat, I don't think Crittenden should be blamed. He inherited a situation that was beyond <coughs> correction. Likely newspaper editors were intrigued with this Nashville general's Swiss name. And the battle at Mill Springs was Zolly's fight, with some newspapers not even mentioning the name of Crittenden, who outranked the hero. And in federal camps, the soldiers sang, Zolly Coffer's dead. The last words he said was, here's another wildcat a-coming. And, he, and up jumped Colonel Fry and hit him in the eye and sent him to the happy land of Kena. The body of the 50-year-old general was laid out on a board in a tent in <coughs> Somerset, and his remains became the object of curiosity of the raw civilian soldiers, some of whom had never had a close-up at a general, Union or Confederate, dead or alive. So the soldiers stripped the corpse of its clothing, and one soldier wrote home that he had gotten a piece of Zollicoffer's vest with a bullet hole in it. And after the cloth souvenirs were exhausted, the soldiers then ob obtained locks of hair. A newspaper correspondent who viewed the remains wrote that he was a pretty fine-looking man, about five feet ten inches high, a long face, fair skin, high forehead, large Roman nose, blue eyes, small mouth, and good teeth. He also reported that there was no hair upon the face, which indicates that the Union soldiers must have made souvenirs out of the whiskers. Colonel Connell, who identified the body for Thomas, stated that Zollicoffer's face bore no expression such as is usually found on those who fall in battle. No malice, no reckless hate, not even a shadow of physical pain. It was calm, placid, noble. But I never looked on a, a countenance so marked with sadness. A deep dejection had settled on it. Thomas made arrangements for Zollicoffer's remains to be embalmed at Lebanon and then shipped to Nashville by way of Louisville to be escorted by a captured Confederate surgeon, a man named D.B. Cliff, who upon his arrival in Nashville was to see to it that uh, he secured the release of a Union prisoner. And Zollicoffer's fine horse, with a hole in its ear, received when the general fell, was likewise sent with the body to Nashville. In late January and early February, Last honors were paid by the citizens of Nashville. Zollicoffer's body lay in state in the Capitol building where large numbers of people passed by the bier. And Episcopalian funeral services were conducted on February the 2nd by Bishop Odie, and he was buried in the Old City Cemetery. 
No southern city had ever sent forth braver sons than those who followed Zollicoffer. And they went with such exultant confidence and manly spirit to the fatal field of Fishing Creek. Gentlemen, the meeting is open for discussion. <clears throat> Abe? I'll start it. I didn't like your crack about <laughs> Thomas's delay in putting on his uniform. <laughs> According to... Uh, he had an aching Dick, back, didn't he? He had an aching back. According <laughs> to Dick O'Connor's book, he had an accident at some time previously, and it was, his spine was very painful. If you've ever tried to put on a coat with a painful spine, I don't know how Thomas felt that. <laughs> but one other, another interesting thing about uh, Thomas' connection with that battle was the fact that for the first time, perhaps the only time during the war, President Lincoln, in thanking the Army for the battle, made no mention of the commanding general. It was part of that uh, strange plot against Thomas <clears throat> on the part of Stanton and others in Washington to uh, prevent his promotion because he was a Virginian. He never got promoted for the battle, which, as you say, was the first, uh, first Union victory. And he wasn't made the major general until some time later. And uh, it was uh, rather a rather scurvy trick on Lincoln's part, I should think, <laughs> probably promoted by Stanton, <coughs> to praise the Army for that battle without mentioning Thomas. Well, uh, that uh, occurred on one other occasion uh, in the official thanks uh, after the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, they didn't mention Meade in the official report. And uh, Thomas's biographers do make a great deal out of the fact that he was not uh, made a major general. And uh, uh, the war was new, and uh, if they had made Thomas a major general, they did promote three colonels to brigadier at this time as a result of this of this battle, but if they had had pushed forward the promotion of Thomas, he would have outranked Buell and Grant. Another thing, uh, Thomas doesn't deserve too much credit, I feel, in this in planning this battle because of the fact that it was Zollicoffer's blunder or Crittenden's blunder rather than Thomas's victory. Now that may be a little unfair, but. As I said, when Thomas advanced upon the Confederate forces at Beach Grove, he had no plan uh, to put in operation, and he dreaded an attack upon entrenchments. He was a master of counterattacks, and uh, he proved that mastery, I think, after the battle started. Elmer? Uh, Abe mentioned about Stanton being in a sort of conspiracy with others against uh, Thomas. Well, it wasn't only Stanton. Grant himself uh, had a very strong antipathy for Thomas. It was only a matter of sheer luck that he didn't remove Thomas later in the war. Uh, I think we all should sh also should point out that, that Stanton had only been Secretary of War a week, and uh, he might not have, by that time, have had fixed ideas <coughs> about uh, who he liked and who he disliked. Was McCook the one who was later cashiered? Was McCook, uh, that I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I can't answer that question. Can anyone answer that question? McCook, was he cashiered? Mr. Worthington. I wish you'd uh, 
clear up a little bit. For those of us who have driven through there various times going down to Harrogate, just where this uh, fight occurred with relation to the present landmarks that we would um, see in making the trip safe from Chicago to Well, the way to go, I, I neglected to get the highway number, but you could go by way of uh, Bardstown, uh, Elizabethtown, Elizabethtown, or Bardstown, let's say Hodgenville, Columbia, and uh, then you come to a little village called Nancy, which is about 10 miles north of Somerset. And just a, less than a mile off of the main highway, there's a very, little, a very nice little park there, which with a, a nice Confederate monument uh, showing the spot where Zollicoffer fell. And they also have a <coughs> monument there to about uh, 150 Confederate dead, and they threw into a sinkhole and then covered it up. Uh, the, uh, the Confederate uh, uh, organizations have marked both of these spots. Now, the Union dead are buried in a very nice federal cemetery on the highway. Uh, you can't miss it as you go by there, and they have a custodian in residence at this military cemetery. There's not a great deal to see uh, in the way of, of the battle. The country is still pretty wild, and uh, even this park where Zollicoffer fell looks just about like it did, I imagine, in the day that the uh, the death occurred. It's really, the, the area is really, geologically, the north edge of the Cumberland Plateau, the breaks of Cumberland Plateau. Yes, it? that's true. And then they have built a lot of federal dams down in that section, and a lot of that area is flooded. Now, not in, the, not in relation to the battlefield, but in, the, in relation to the entrenchments and the crossing <coughs> at the Cumberland River. How far would you say roughly it is from Lincoln Memorial University? Uh, it's exactly 110 miles. Which direction? North. Yes. Gentleman there. Uh, I've been a member of the club for some time. I'd like to make a proposal. I don't know if it's made of the Treasury or not, but they say a picture is worth a thousand words. I enjoyed the speech very much, but uh, being a student of the Civil War, particularly battles, I think it would be a very good thing for the club to buy some maps and uh, do it up and get it done. Because uh, I think that all of us are not experts on every particular battle. And uh, I think we bring out uh, <coughs> things that we said here tonight. <laughs> your point is well taken, and, and your executive committee feels particularly proud that we voted to take such action at a meeting a little over a month ago to procure maps and also some perhaps some type of a projector so that the speaker could have a map before him and be projected on the screen up above him so we could follow it so we are trying to do our best to see to it that our military our battle talks certainly are illustrated if at all possible don russell i uh, well i'd like to clear up that objection uh, that was made about Thomas's failure to be promoted. We had a institution in those days that everyone, no one seemed to understand at all called the Brevet Commission, <coughs> uh, which was a, an honorary idea and uh, practically the equivalent of the present day battle medal uh, to explain this 
briefly, a professed commission was a purely honorary title, but you could be called into service in your brevet commission, and in which case you would pay in the brevet. The custom was to give you a brevet of the next highest rank as an honor in case of, of action. Well, that was carried out to this extent, and I've talked to a few men who held them because they were, in effect, down to 1898. But if a man was in battle and uh, uh, acted in the uh, not a particularly heroic manner, but in the matter of line of duty, it was expected that he would be recommended for a brevet. In other words, it was somewhat of a discredit not to be, if I make it clear. Uh, if a man did his duty, he was expected to be brevetted, recommended for a brevet and the next highest commission. Now, of course, those could go on and on. You always got the next highest, and you might be a captain in actual rank and get to be a brigadier general by the vet. But certainly in a case like this where a brigadier general won a fight, it would be customary to give him a brevet as major general, which would be meaningless. It wouldn't have anything to do with his relative rank in relation to other people, but it would be a recognition of the fact that he had honorably carried on a fight. And I think that's what the objection was, that Thomas didn't get that recognition was normal, normal procedure. <clears throat> Joe Eisengrath. The mention of that brevet, uh, at the end of the war, before most of these officers were mustered out, which is, I think, customary even today, you get an increase of one rank in your reserve. Yeah. But it's interesting to note that about half of the generals who ended up as brigadiers, I don't think there are very many major generals for those, uh, had their commissions dating from March 13, 1865. In other words, most of them were mustered out probably in June or July of 65, but they dated them back so that they would get pen up, uh, pension benefits and many monuments that go with, with that rank. That was a blanket bill on the back. Everybody was Three or four hundred generals yeah. created that day. And more often, too. <coughs> Gerald, we are very, very much indebted to you for a delightful evening. Oh, pardon me. I miss you. Yeah. I just wanted to add a note that uh, was uh, stated by Joe Perry. Joe said that Zollicoffer was born on the site which is now occupied by the uh, Andy Jackson Hotel in Nashville, uh, across from the Capitol. Is that right, Gerald? Yes, Abe. That's right. Gerald, how did he ever get the Brigadier Generalship so early in the war, being a civilian? Uh, I mean, Zalikov? Well, I think he was largely a, a political uh, appointee, and he was a man with such great energy and uh, uh, such a strong leader that they just naturally felt that he deserved the appointment. I, I don't think there's any logical reason for his... Having his appointment uh, as brigadier, and I don't see that there's any logical reason for him to have the troops that he did. <coughs> and they did not intend for him to ever wage any offensive war, and they wanted him to be uh, out on observation. And they felt that he could 
observed the situation better from the south side of the river than from the north side. And as early as November the 25th, they sent by courier a, a, an order <coughs> asking him to get back south of the river, and he ignored it. And when Crittenden arrived on January the 3rd, he was amazed to find he was north of the river. And Zollicoffer pointed out that the reason he was that it was too great a, a danger to put the, half the forces on one side and leave the other half on the northern side when there were northern forces in front of them. It was just a, a great blunder and a, a great mistake. And I think a lot of the blame can be attributed to Albert Sidney Johnson, who was not uh, looking over the situation as he should have been. Gerald, we are very grateful to you for coming up from LMU to deliver this talk. Those of us who persuaded you many, many years to come up and deliver your first talk are doubly proud. And as a slight token of our affection, I'd like to give you one of our Civil War Roundtable pins. <coughs> I doubt if it will have much effect on Florence when you get home, and you might try to use your influence. Gentlemen, we couldn't possibly conclude a meeting taking place on the 90th anniversary of one of the most tragic events in American history without noting it. And we couldn't possibly note April 14th, 1955, without a Eisenschimmel in the audience, without calling on Otto. <laughs> I might add, this is the first time I ever found Otto surprised. the site of his home, evidently in Nashville, it's marked. And you ask about his newspaper publishing work. I think it was just largely uh, county newspapers, wasn't it? The Nashville paper. The Nashville uh, paper. Two or three of them. There were several, there were several uh, small papers of which he was an editor. One failed. So I can't give you a direct answer on either one of your questions. None of them are in existence today. Mr. Chairman, may I make a comment? Why, most certainly, General. a strategic reconnoitering patrol. The general has no business going out and letting some staff officer give his orders. He should have the situation in his hand and in his head and send his men to that point that indicates some kind of victory or betterment for his outfit. And uh, uh, in all the studies we had at Fort Leavenworth when I was there as a student in 1909 and 10 thereabouts, 
we made much in our map maneuvers. The, the Germans uh, had a name for that thing that the plate on maps, I forget the German. What's the German word for it? Uh, they called them uh, uh, Kriegspiel, war games. And when a general had a situation, he didn't go out like old helicopter did. But he would send a captain or a lieutenant with four or five men who went along, usually in the cavalry, and pick out what they could of information pertaining to the enemy's position and strength and whatever they might learn about his intentions or probable intentions. But in this case, the gentleman himself, and that's where you make their big mistake. It's like having, a, a, well, another thing about, um, in connection with that was, uh, when we were studying those things, sometimes we had a German come. And of course, way back in 1910, the Germans were number one in strategy, tactics, and so on. And uh, we asked this German, well, now uh, suppose that you've won a victory and your troops are tired, but you wanted an objective, but you haven't got, what would you do? How can you get your general to know that his men are just dead on their feet? How can you make them get up and fight? And the staff officer said, well, we always open up a case of champagne and give the general so much that he signs the order which the chief of staff has prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> now it can be told. <laughs> that doesn't apply to all generals, though. Does it apply to all generals present? <laughs> Gentlemen, it's been a delightful evening. We will all look so forward to seeing you on May 6th when we'll meet in this room once more and Dr. T. Harry Williams will be our speaker. And again, our thanks to Dr. McMurtry. Good night. This will make a wonderful paper. Yeah. Thank you very much. There's an old soldier that was a very, very good part of the presentation. Well,